Hello to the Meister fans, and happy Thanksgiving to those of you who are listening to this episode on the day of its release. It is Thursday, November 27th, 2014. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. I hope that in addition to spending the next 35 minutes with me, you will find time to spend with your loved ones on this wonderful holiday. A couple of quick things before we get started. First of all, we've got some great deals for the Meister fans. They're exclusive to us. 15% off of everything that mojagear.com has in their store using the code MEISTER at checkout. Also 19% off of 510 products if you're looking for a pair of climbing shoes. We also have buy three, get one free from Bondi Band, and you can see all of the highlights of these deals at our website, mtnmeister.com, under the Meister Deals section, if for some reason you forget them. Okay, on to today's episode. Now, in the spirit of Thanksgiving, we decided it would be good to release some episodes that evoke a feeling of gratitude. On Tuesday, we threw it back to episode number 68 with Trevor Thomas the blind hiker today we're throwing it back to episode number 73 with tim medvets from the heroes project we originally released this episode on the 13th anniversary of 9-11 and for good reason tim has a chilling and heartwarming story mountain meister starts now who are the Mountain Meisters. Committing to the goal and galvanizing you and your team behind that one single focus. Being at peace with that fear and being okay with it. You gain a real appreciation for your life and for what you have. Learn about their extreme lives on rock, snow, and ice with your host, Ben Shank. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Mountain Meister. I am Ben Shank. And on the show today, we have a story of resilience and a story that will eliminate any reason that you have to complain about your life. With me, I have Tim Medvets. Tim is the founder of The Heroes Project, a nonprofit organization that works with veterans, soldiers, military families, and communities on all levels. They've taken disabled vets to the tops of mountains all over the world. They're currently training an injured Marine who lost his leg in Afghanistan, Charlie Linville, to go to the top of Mount Everest. Tim has an amazing story of his own, which we will get to shortly. Thanks for joining me today, Tim. Welcome to Mountain Meister. Hey, thanks for having me. So what I didn't say in that little spiel is that you were an ex-Hells Angel, which many people know. So you're an ex-Hells Angel. You run a nonprofit that basically makes people's eyes water. You're a bad boy with a big heart. Tim, the women must love you, huh? (laughs) Yeah, well, unfortunately, I live in L.A., so uh, different type of girl over here. I prefer the girls in uh, Colorado and Oregon. Oh, there you go. (laughs) And then I found out you almost got married to Cher, but I think that's for a different podcast. Um, Yeah, don't believe everything you read. All right, good enough. Enough stupidity for me. Let's get right into it because you do have a story that will give a lot of people goosebumps. Let's flash back September 10th, 2001. What happened? Uh, just, uh, Just basically racing my Harley through the streets of L.A. and, you know, racing through the streets, I, I should say. Probably, you know, pushing about 90 to 100. And uh, 
a pickup truck decided to make a, a U-turn and uh, had nowhere to go and threw the bike down, slid into him, launched about 100 feet in the air and landed and pretty much broke every bone in my body. Um, and uh, they knocked me out and I woke up in the morning in uh, ICU, intensive care, had a, uh, a breather, light was on life support. Um, I woke up actually opened my eyes and I remember the last thing the doctor said to me was that you know we might have to amputate your foot and I just remember you know looking at the doctor amongst about you know 10 hell's angels in the emergency room <laughs> saying I wake up tomorrow morning I better have a foot you know or you're dead <laughs> don't cut my foot off man <laughs> and well the next day is as the audience may know September 11th 2001 right so I, I woke up you know, my eyes opened up and I had this machine breathing for me and I kind of got a bearing like, okay, I'm alive. Check that off the list. And then I remembered, I just remember in my head telling me he's going to cut my foot off. And I looked down and I seen my toes, both toes from both feet. And uh, I was like, okay, check that off the list. And then I just started noticing that there's all these doctors and nurses in my room. And I couldn't say nothing like, hey, I'm up, you know, I need help, come over here, And because I couldn't talk. And I just noticed that no one was paying any attention to me, And but there was all these doctors and nurses in the room, and they were all with their heads were turned up to the ceiling. And I just I just kind of gazed to see, well, what the hell are they looking at, you know? And I, I, as I looked up, they were all staring at the television, and as my eyes caught the TV, it was about, you know, 9.30 in the morning, and... I literally was watching the Twin Towers coming down, and uh, it was just a surreal moment, and I I literally had this moment like, you know, turn that off, Mm -hmm. and I got my own problems, you know, I'm the one that needs help over here, not not realizing the extent of what really was happening, you know, it was just so surreal, and so when people ask, you know, where were you on, you know, the morning of September 11th, that's a real easy one for me. Yeah, yeah, so you're lying on the hospital bed, your body is dilapidated, basically, Uh, You're watching by far the worst terror attack in U.S. history. Uh, What sort of emotions are running through your body that day, and then do they transform over the next few days? I mean, you know, the the piss and vinegar in me was just, you know, get me out of this bed. Mm -hmm. You know, I got stuff I got to do. Get me out of here. Not realizing, you know, the extent of my injuries. You know, I basically, you know, broke everything. And, uh... As, you know, the weeks progressed and, you know, you come off the morphine and then, you know, they move you to the uh, the rehab hospital and you start the therapy and they start having you squeeze the ball. And, and then I finally got out of the bed and they got me in the wheelchair and it was just a, a four-month road of, you know, from the wheelchair to the, the walker with little tennis balls on the end. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then the, uh, which is the worst part of the recovery. There's nothing cool about the walker with the tennis balls on the bottom. You can't play with the tennis balls. Yeah, and then I, then I went to the crutches, and then from the crutches to the cane, which, of course, the cane is uh, the coolest of them all. Oh, you like, you like the cane? <laughs> I like the cane, man. Chicks, chicks dig the cane. <laughs> <laughs> and that was, uh, yeah, that was, uh, you know, about a good solid four months, five months of uh, going through that. So emotionally, did you, do you think you hit rock bottom? No, not quite yet. I still believe that, you know, I wasn't hurt. And so when I finally was able to get out of the hospital and they released me, it was, you know, I modified the Harley, you know, with an extended kickstand that basically I didn't have to use my foot. My foot was still in the cast. 
where I could put the kickstand out with my hand and mm. I you know rigged up a thing where I could put my uh, crutch on the handlebars with a bungee cord and <laughs> made a toe heel shifter so wow. I could shift my cast and uh, and I you know and then of course you know probably up to about 15 or 20 Vicodins a day and add some whiskey and just basically numbed myself for a year just not accepting that I was really hurt it was a, a very self-destructive year of not not coming to grips with you know my life has been changed forever but then a year after your incident you say to yourself I'm going to climb Mount Everest which uh, what could possibly inspire you to do something so absurd after what had just happened to you well it's it's real simple you know I mean you're uh you know, I lived all over the world. I trained in Brazil to be a cage fighter. I bounced in, you know, eight nightclubs in New York City for eight years. And I ran with the Hells Angels for many years. And then now here I am in this room, in this physical therapy room with this lady having me squeeze a ball. And then there's, you know, the doctor telling me, oh, just be lucky you're alive. And you'll never do this. You'll never do that again. And blah, blah, blah. And that just wasn't enough for me. And I was kind of a crossroads in my life where... When I finally just, you know, dumped the Vicodins into the toilet and uh, and then just had this this moment, like, what am I going to do with my life? And uh, there was there it was the Krakauer book, Into Thin Air, which I'm sure a lot of your listeners have read. And uh, I read the book and and that was it. That was my answer. I subletted the apartment, bought an open end ticket to Nepal, basically a one way ticket and uh, got on a plane, flew to Nepal. Um, but prior to leaving, it's funny because I, you know, I called all my friends trying to rent my apartment. I'm like, "Well, where are you going? You know, I'm gonna go climb Everest." And that 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 alone is uh, is something I think everybody who's listening to this should try one time in their life. Like the reaction on your friend's face is priceless when you say, "I'm gonna go climb Everest." <laughs> <laughs> did you people know? try to encourage you not to? Of course, everybody did. You know, everybody's like, "You're nuts. You ain't gonna do that." And you just have an accident. You just break every bone in your body. And I'm just like, you know, all right, you know, I'll. F you to the doctor and F you to everybody and, you know, and I'll do it. And I, so I just figured that if I'm going to climb the biggest, baddest mountain in the world, I'm going to climb with, engulf myself in that world. And so the only way to do that would be to go move to the Himalayas and live with the Sherpas and just do what they do. So you did, you, you went in 2002? Uh, 2002, yep. I flew to Kathmandu and I bought the rest of my gear that I, I didn't have and uh, got on the plane up to the Everest region Threw the backpack on, threw the Walkman on my on my head. Yes, I said Walkman. We didn't have iPods in 2002. And uh, had a stack of CDs and just hiked up into the Everest region. And then met some Sherpas and then uh, got welcomed into their house. And basically it went on for a year of just you know climbing every peak around the Everest region, preparing for uh, Everest and ice climbing and rock climbing and rope techniques and rescue techniques and... And then that began a, uh, a four to five year mission of climbing through the Andes, Cascades and the Rockies, the Sierras. And it was just, uh, you know, I prepared myself for a good solid five years before I made my first attempt on Everest. So you talk about immersing yourself. You're, you did it the right way. I've heard of some people, right. at least these days, who don't exactly immerse themselves in the training before they actually go and do it. Yeah, the, you know, the nice the thing about me is that, you know, at that point a year after the accident you know the girlfriend dumped me you know the hell's angels had enough of me <laughs> i was just completely out of control and so it was a good time for me to just kind of take off off the grid and work on myself and my thing was i didn't want to be that guy in the team 
that had to have somebody wipe my ass, you know, or babysit me. You know, I wanted to be completely self-sufficient and self-reliant in case if somebody on my team fell into a crevasse, I can get them out. You know, if I needed to short rope somebody up the mountain, down the mountain, I could do it. You know, so I wanted to be fully prepared on on all levels. Uh, just despite what what the Discovery Channel portrayed of me, <laughs> you know, showing up to base camp with a sack full of cash, which is true, and uh, just going to go climb Everest. That wasn't the case. But, you know, it's it's Hollywood, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I read on, um, for our listeners, Tim did an Ask Me Anything on Reddit, uh, which is basically exactly what it sounds. You you go on for, what, a half hour or an hour, and people can ask you any question that they want. And I read in one of them, somebody asked you about an incident on one of your Discovery Channel uh, shows, and Hollywood didn't exactly portray you correctly. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, 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 it's small things like, I literally showed up because I had a, I was on a team with uh, Eric Simonson and IMG, and I sold two of my Harleys, you know, maxed out the credit cards, emptied the bank account, and I was still about $15,000 short. You know, and Eric was a, just a great guy. Like, he basically had me, you know, extended my making the payment until it was already, like, February. You know, and you're supposed to be, everything's got to be paid Everest in full by January. And so here it was like, you know, almost March and I still didn't pay it all. And I just told him I needed a couple of weeks and he's like, you know, I need to get, I need to get the secure the permits. And so if I don't have the money by tomorrow, you're off the team. And so that's what happened. He kicked me off the team. I was down in Argentina training and I came back to LA and uh, my flight was leaving in 48 hours from Nepal and I was not on a team. And the day before I left, my buddy bought my truck, gave me the 15,000 in cash Threw it in the bank account, flew to Nepal. Um, I emailed Russell Bryce, uh, who's the owner of Hymex, and he. Uh, I met him at a bar in Kathmandu that first year in 2002 that I flew there. You know, and of course, telling him, you know, yeah, I want to climb Everest one day, and yeah, how many times he must get that. And so I emailed him and said if he had an opening, and he had he had a French guy on his team that canceled, and so he said, well, meet me in Kathmandu and when you arrive and so I got there and then he said okay this is how much it is you got to wire it into this bank account and uh, we're leaving in 48 hours and I went to the bank Bank of America I called them up and asked them to wire the money and they wouldn't wire the money from I had to be in one of the branches (laughs) so I'm like are you kidding me and they're like no I'm like I'll fax you a signature they wouldn't do it so I literally walked into a the standard charter bank in Lazenpot in Kathmandu and gave him my credit card and my passport, and they wheeled in a cart to the manager's office with about 30 million rupees stacked with with twine wrapped around blocks of like <laughs> rupees. It was like 70, 70 rupees per dollar. And so I literally filled up my backpack with 30 million rupees, more money than you know 10 Nepali families could make in a year. And uh, I went outside, I got in a rickshaw, I called up Russell. I said, you know, I'll meet you in the lobby. And the uh, the rickshaw driver said to me, he goes, oh, my God, that, that backpack's very big. What's what's inside? <laughs> I said, oh, it's 30 million rupees. And he laughed like, yeah, 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 sure. And so when I pulled up, when he pulled up to the hotel, I took the backpack and I opened it up and I pulled a block of 10 million rupees out and pulled out like 100 rupees to pay him. <laughs> 
I'm just I'm just picturing this ex Hell's Angel carrying around this big bag of money. People are like, what is this guy doing? Yeah, it's one of those uh, it's one of those moments that's on your your life highlight reel. You know, the look on his face when I pulled the block of money out and he you know realized that I was I wasn't joking. That's and I gave good. and I walked in and I threw the backpack to Russell and I paid him in cash. And then that night he told me he's like, oh, I forgot to tell you, but Discovery Channel's filming it. You got to sign these waivers. And so that whole TV thing was a fluke. And so that night I met the whole production crew and they're just like, who's this guy with the, you know, the bandana and leather vest on? <laughs> and that was it. And then uh, we started climbing Everest and I, I didn't realize the extent of the TV show. It was just, I thought it was going to be a documentary in England because it was a British production company. And next thing you know, I come back to Hollywood six months later and there's commercials everywhere and there's a billboard with my picture on it, Everest Beyond the Limit on Sunset Boulevard. And But, you know, it's Hollywood. they got to sell advertising. That was in the 2006 summit attempt? 2006, yeah. Okay, so so you were 300 feet from the summit, like yep. I read, right? I so, could see it. So you could see it. You had gone... 28,729 feet out of 29,000 feet. Not completely accurate because Everest doesn't start at sea level, but still. We've had other people who have been really, really close to the summit. I mean, that's just got to be the most difficult decision. Can you take us there? Like, what what are you thinking at that moment? You know, well, I mean, I was born and raised in New Jersey, so I'm already born with a a chip on my shoulder and an attitude. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, you know, when I got a guy that's... uh, that's telling me over the radio that you got to turn around and I'm feeling great. I mean, everything's firing right. I mean, I'm feeling good. I'm, my head's right. My legs are, everything's great. And, uh, he's telling me how to turn around and it's because I don't have, I only have enough oxygen to make it to the summit because of the pace that I was, I was at and I burned up too much oxygen. And he basically said to me, well, you know, you're going to be, you're going to be coming down the descent with no oxygen, supplemental oxygen. And so that, you know, for me, I was just like, that's not acceptable. I'm looking at the summit. And, but, you know, at the end of the day, I'm paying him, you know, not to be my buddy. I'm paying him to get me up and and get me down safe because he's down at at a safer level and he's calculating oxygen tanks and time left and where we're at. It's a whole method that these commercial operators, these expedition leaders, um, calculate into these into this factor of summiting, and so you know after arguing with him for about a half hour and fighting him, which is you know just the jersey in me, I finally made the decision to listen to him, and uh, I came down, and it was uh, by far the best decision I ever made because uh, I did end up running out of oxygen uh, before I got to the camp, so I would have been in a, a really serious situation and things like that. Uh, small little things like that is when disaster strikes. You know, I mean, simple things. You lose your sunglasses, you lose a glove can result in death and frostbite and all kinds of crazy stuff at that altitude. Mm -hmm. Was that a humbling experience for you? Yeah, of course. I mean, I've been training for this thing, living, breathing, eating Everest for the last five years of my life. I mean, I had no, no social life, no nothing. I gave everything, you know, financially as well. And to have to turn around from this dream being so close was uh, it was a really hard thing to swallow, you know. But uh, in the end, you know, going back the, the next year it, and summoning the next year was actually more rewarding to come back. But for me, the summit for me on the year coming back was 
where I turned around was right by this 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 traverse that kind of you had to go around this bend and then it was your last push to the summit. And so for me, like what drove me crazy over the last year was I just wanted to know what it looked like around that that ridge. <laughs> and so where I turned around when I got to that point the second year, I just kind of stopped and sat down and remembered everything and then when I finally came around that edge just seeing that view from the other side of the mountain that was my summit for me that's what really ate me up is not knowing what was around that corner that's neat probably dreamt about it yeah it was uh and even you know the second year I mean it's it's it was absolutely when people ask me what was it like what was it like on the summit you know and I mean there's all the other factors like you know you when people say you can see the curvature of the earth that's all true you really can And then aside from that, it's it's like the quietest place on earth that you've ever been to. And but for me personally, the way I sum it up is that it was by far the absolute worst day of my life and the greatest day of my life, all wrapped up into one. Why is it the worst day of your life? It was the hardest thing I've ever done in my entire life. 2007, you, you summit Everest, a goal that was five years in the making. You gave up your life for this, and th- that's it. I mean, you did it. You went from the lowest low to now you're at the highest high. Uh, what's next after that? Ballroom dancing. <laughs> <laughs> if if my doctor had it his way, it would be golf. <laughs> that would be uh, that would be the move. So unfortunately, when I you know got off the mountain, it's always the big question: well, What do you do after Everest? How do you top that? And I just kind of you know I started skydiving again and scuba diving, and and then I went down to Mexico and went up the volcanoes down there, and then I just had the bug again, and that was it. I decided I'm going to go climb the seven summits, you know, and that'll keep me entertained for the next couple of years. Um, but you know Everest for me when you go to Everest because it still it still gets so much national you know international press that a lot of people are climbing not just for themselves they're climbing for to raise awareness or you know breast cancer or you know ALS or you know all these different great causes out there and for me it was just all about me I didn't really care about anybody it was it was a personal goal for me I had to prove everybody wrong I had to prove to myself so when I decided to take on the seven summits, I decided that I'm not going to be such a selfish guy. I'm going to help an organization out. And that organization was our, uh, our vets. Mm-hmm. And so hence the heroes project was born. How does a hell's angel and ex hell's angel start know how to start a nonprofit? That's kind of a funny story because, uh, <laughs> a friend of mine said, uh, you know, I was having a really hard time with, uh, an organization, on trying to partner up with them to, you know, and they sent me a letter of recommendation and all this stuff. And I never had such a hard time writing a check to an organization. And I was so frustrated. So I reached out to a friend of mine and basically said, you know, well, do you have any organizations that you know of in the, you know, to help out our, our veterans, returning veterans? And they just said, well, just do your own. I said, do my own what? I said, start your own foundation. And next thing you know, I, you know, I pay this guy a few bucks and fill out all the applications. And six months later, I get the letter in the mail from the government saying you approve a five hundred one c three, you know, nonprofit mm-hmm. status. And uh, I literally that same day after leaving the post office, I went down to Barnes and Noble and bought the How to Run a Nonprofit for Dummy book. <laughs> <laughs> 
And I'm not kidding, man. I'm, I literally have. I own that book. It even comes with a CD. <laughs> now, is that helpful? I mean, what do I know, man? I'm just a biker, you know, slash like you know, climber, bouncer. It seems That's like it was the way the organization's yeah. going now. <laughs> I didn't know nothing about running a nonprofit. Absolutely nothing. And so, you know. That's when the Heroes Project was born. And every single climb that I've done, I've pulled it off on a beer budget. And uh, I basically called out one of the, the camera guy who actually uh, filmed me on the summit of Everest, who's just this, you know, you know, hippie climber from Colorado who figured out a way to climb around the world and make money at it, you know, by learning how to work a camera. Mm-hmm. And so I told him about my idea about helping out these vets, and uh, and he was on board. His name is Ken Sauls, and he's been on every continent with me with all the guys. And it's and uh, you know initially and still to this day, I, I I just I train one guy. I'm up in the mountains every weekend for about six to eight months training him for depending on the peak, and then we go. And you know how it's it started like that because I can only I can only afford to take one guy. You know, in a perfect world, yeah, I'd love to take 15 injured vets, you know, up these mountains around the world, but I didn't have any money. So, but in the end result, what ended up happening was I started realizing that I'm making a a larger impact on one guy's life as opposed to making a little impact on a lot of guys' lives. And so it's, you know, the focusing the attention on one guy, you know, and the journey that he goes, what he goes through to finally get to the end result of standing on the summit. What you were saying before the show, too, is that you need this to be something that that will push somebody to their limits as hard as it can possibly be. And when you have more people like that, then it could potentially hold some people back from pushing themselves to their limits. Yeah. I know this sounds a little ridiculous, Tim, but... After experiencing something life-threatening and something so traumatic, you have done incredible things. You've pushed yourself to climb Everest. And these vets, I mean, they undergo something life-threatening and go on to do amazing things. Is there is there any way to mimic that? Like, I, I feel like the world would almost be a better place if everybody underwent some sort of, like, really traumatic, life-threatening experience. Yeah, uh, I mean, everybody goes through their own journey through life, you know, and with me, my whole life's always been a, a, a selfish deal. It's always been about, you know, Tim, Tim's number one, you know, and and what I found was, you know, that first climb that I did in Russia on Mount Elbrus with a kid that had his leg blown off all the way up to his hip in Iraq, you know, and getting him up to about 50 feet below the summit and taking the rope off him so I, you know short rope and had a rope on him the whole time mm-hmm. and then taking the rope off him you know and just kind of looked at him like hey man like you know this is all about you right now it ain't about me it ain't about the heroes project it, it ain't about the war it's this is your moment man go get it and he just turned around and took those last you know 100 steps up to the summit and threw his arms up in the air and he started yelling and screaming and crying and uh I just sat there and watched, and it was uh, the first time in my climbing career that the last thing on my mind was going up and standing on the summit and getting the picture, you know, I'm on the highest mountain in Europe and putting the picture up on my mantle in my house and, you know, another notch off the belt. I could care less. For me, it was watching him summit, 
And I actually like kept wait after you know he spent a few minutes up there. I'm like yelling to him, "All right, come on, let's get out of here." You know, this, the weather is starting to turn. Let's let's get out of here. And I was still below the summit, <laughs> and he wouldn't he wouldn't leave. He's like, "Get up here, no way, get up here, get up here." And so finally, I uh, I went up to the summit and uh, we had a hug, and and that was the moment that that basically went from uh, you know it's all about Tim to you know helping these guys out and. Uh, I think that America, you know, we're obviously known as a country who likes to uh, fix the world. You know, there's a lot of problems in the world. There's a lot of great organizations that help out different countries and uh, around the world. And But I think a lot of Americans need to take a look in our own backyard. And that's what I did. You know, when I, I would go down to Balboa Naval Hospital in San Diego, and there was at one point uh, when I first started going down there was about 93 amputees that were in that hospital inpatients, not to mention the other hundreds that were coming in every day for therapy. And they're all amputees. And you spend an afternoon down there in the courtyard and watching all these young kids wheeling by and missing arms and legs. And it uh, it'll open you up, you know, and I think that if, if most Americans see what's going on on that side of the world in America, they would uh, try and fix our own house first, you know, and let, let's fix our own house and then we'll go out and fix the world. And so I'm a big believer in that. And uh, unfortunately, it's not the way America works. You know, it's uh, uh, especially now it's like you hear about, uh, you know, Jay-Z and, uh, and Beyonce going to freaking Cuba, you know, and it's just like, it, it's just, it's absolute madness. You know, we got a big problem. You're talking about, since the invasion of Iraq in Iraq in 2003, there's been over 50,000 injured veterans. I'm talking, you know, amputees, like seriously wounded guys. And so for me, I'm just one American trying to do my part, you know, for this country. And it's, uh, it's uh, I get more out of it than they do. Do you ever wonder where you'd be had you not been in that motorcycle accident? <laughs> uh, probably, uh, you know. Still racing my Harley around, terrorizing the town. I guess. <laughs> you know, so. Tim, you were never in the military, um, and although you were basically torn apart and put back together, you are not considered disabled now, correct? No, but I actually was given a, a, a disabled parking permit. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> so, not that I use it, but. Uh, <laughs> So I, I know I know that the vets have no problem with this because I've just seen footage of the way they react and how thankful they are of you. But do you ever have trouble empathizing with them? You know, I, I always tell them, I'm like, look, you know, I got more metal in my body than I think anybody walking this planet Earth. Um, and uh, I always tell them, I'm like, you know, I don't ever talk about me and I don't talk about all my injuries and basically how when I first meet him and we we talk and you know I just this guy this new guy uh, he's a marine that lost both his legs uh, a couple years ago and he's our new recruit and so I went and met him last week and we're going to start training uh, next week and I you know I listened to his whole story and told me what happened and his injuries and then at some point I you know I talk about, I tell them about me and I'm like, look, man, you know, I broke every bone in my body. I got plates in my skull, my hand, my knee, my foot, my back and so on and so forth. I said, and I'm not saying that, 
you know, my injuries compare to your injuries, you know, because they don't by no comparison. And then there everything else that comes along with the war and how he got injured. Mm-hmm. Mine was just a motorcycle wreck. I mean, these guys get shot at, blown up. I mean, it's 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 and see all the death and mayhem that comes with the war. I don't, I I can't relate to that, but I can certainly understand the path that they have to go on after you know they've been injured and after the doctors and the physical therapists are done with them you know i can certainly relate to that part of their journey and it's uh you know and they're hearing the same things from the doctors too you know be lucky you're alive and for a you know a badass 21 year old marine who's been you know walking through afghanistan with an m60 on his back in charge of a platoon you know or a hell's angel you know, that's not enough for us, man. Like, you, I don't want to hear that, be lucky I'm alive. I want to hear about what I can do now. Like, can I do this? Can I do that? Yeah. Unfortunately, you know, the medical industry doesn't doesn't really inspire that, that, that part of the recovery. And that's where the Heroes Project comes in. And I come in and say, hey, man, let me show you what worked for me. And let me show you the power of the mountains. And it's basically all I'm doing is I'm taking them to a different battlefield than they're used to. And anybody listening to this podcast right right now knows that, you know, some of these climbs that we've been on and some of these backcountry hikes, you know, and are, are like a battlefield. You know, you run out of food or, you know, trying to find water and melting snow and freezing and can't sleep and <laughs> avalanches and rockfall and. You know, it's uh, it's it gives them back that feeling of being on the battlefield. Yeah, so cool. That's what we give them at mm-hmm. the Heroes Project. If there is a good reason to give up on life, Tim, you've probably seen it either in yourself or in somebody else. Why, what makes people just like keep going? What makes people believe? I mean, it, it's it's I mean, it's tough, man. Like I, I live in L.A., man. I live I literally live right in Hollywood. I could see the Hollywood sign from my balcony and. You know, when you live in a city, you get complacent with all the luxuries that living in a big city gives you. You know, like you go to the faucet, you turn on the faucet, and wow, water comes out. You, you know, you turn on your light switch, the light comes on, power comes on, and you open the refrigerator, and you got cold food, and you drive five minutes down the street, and you're in a supermarket with everything you need to survive and food. And, you know, if most people that live in a big city... went to turn on their water faucet no water came out and opened the fridge and all the food was spoiled and there's no power in the house then they went to the supermarket and there was nothing in the supermarket you know i think uh then they would come into our world and they would kind of get why you know we're so resilient and people that that spend a lot of time in the backcountry and in the mountains can all understand what i'm talking about like so and and i'm not one of these doomsday prepper you know, nut jobs, you know, but I just, uh, I really believe in the, the power of being off the grid. It's a powerful thing. You know, all these damn psychiatrists and stuff, you know, I got, a, I got a nephew that was prescribed, you know, the whole gamut for me. It's like, you know what, come out with me. I'm going to take you into the back country off the grid for 30 days. It's the best Xanax and Zoloft Prozac that you'll ever have in your life. Tim, thank you so much for, for joining me today. For our listeners, you can find out more about The Heroes Project at theheroesproject.org. You can also see highlights of today's episode on our website, mtnmeister.com. Tim, thank you for everything you've done, and you're an inspiration to all of us. Hey, thanks for having me, and I uh, love what you guys do. And uh, till the wheels fall off, brother. 
Hello, Meister fans. Thanks for tuning in to that throwback episode with Tim Medvets, number 73, doing great things with the Heroes Project. Enjoy the rest of your holiday weekend. Don't forget, oh, Black Friday on Friday and Cyber Monday on Monday. You know, the beauty of the deals that we offer on our Meister Deals page on our website aren't tied to a specific day of the year. You don't have to purchase them on Friday or on Cyber Monday. You can purchase them whenever you want, or at least until the deals expire. Full details are on our website. Meister fans, enjoy your Thanksgiving, and enjoy doing the rest of whatever you do when you listen to this podcast. Brand new episodes of Mountain Meister start next week. In the spirit of Thanksgiving, thank you for listening to this podcast. Until next time, I am Ben Shank, and you have been listening to Mountain Meister. Thank you.